1 Thessalonians chapter 5. When I was a kid, I spent a lot of time with my grandparents. They lived up in uh, northeast Arkansas, and uh, they lived out in the country, and uh, I, I loved going to spend time there with them. I, lo- I loved going to, uh, up there to spend time doing things in the country that you can't do in the city, you know. I loved going to spend time with them to do things with grandparents that you just don't get to do with parents, right? I, I, I ate it up, and so I, I would go there every chance that I got. Every break from school that I had, every weekend that I could get up there, I would do that. I would go and be with them. And my grandparents were, uh, they were church-going Christians, and so spending a significant amount of time with them growing up meant that I spent a significant amount of time going to church with them. And they went to your typical country churches, you know, and it was characterized by uh, elderly congregations and fiery preachers and things like this, you know. And as a kid, as a, as a lost kid, there was something about those churches that they went to that I, I found sort of odd. And, and, and quite frankly, I, I found it sort of annoying. And it was that it seemed as though everything in those churches was about the second coming of Christ. Every conversation that you would have with one of those elderly saints, some way, somehow, would eventually come back to, well, you know when Jesus comes back. And certainly every sermon, some way, somehow, would come out in the middle of it when the Lord returns. And as a lost kid, it just kind of became a little annoying to me. So, So much so that one Sunday evening when we were supposed to be getting ready to go to church, I asked my grandpa if I could stay home from church and play. A bit taken aback, my grandpa asked me, son, why, why would you want to do that? And I aggravatedly told my grandpa, I, I just don't see the point. I, I already know what we're going to talk about. Jesus is going to come back. We all get it. What's the point? We've heard it. Why do we need to hear it again? Well, as I've come to Christ and, by God's grace, gotten a better grip on the whole of the gospel, I've seen that I was quite an ignorant child. No doubt there was probably an imbalance of the preaching in those small country churches. But I've come to see that they understood something that I didn't understand at the time. They understood that the second coming of Christ changes the perspective on living the Christian life. And they understood that apart from the second coming, the good news of the gospel actually isn't very good. And as I studied through the texts before us this morning, I began to appreciate the perspective of those older saints afresh. Because the concept that God is communicating in this text is that Christians must live in a manner consistent with two realities. The first is that you belong to Jesus Christ, and the second is that He's coming again to make good on His promises. Stated theologically, you could understand this text this way. As a Christian, your glorification should fuel your sanctification as you're made confident by your justification. 
And don't worry if you're not familiar with those terms. We're going to unpack those a little bit as we make our way through the text this morning. And by God's grace, we see this reality more clearly. With that said, let's read the text now together and go to the Lord and ask Him to help us see it clearly. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verses 1 through 11. Now concerning the times and the seasons, brothers, you have no need to have anything written to you. For you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. While people are saying, there is peace and security, then sudden destruction will come upon them as labor pains come upon a pregnant woman, and they will not escape. But you are not in darkness, brothers, for that day to surprise you like a thief. For you are all children of light, children of the day. We are not of the night or of the darkness. So then, let us not sleep as others do, but let us keep awake and be sober. For those who sleep, sleep at night, and those who get drunk are drunk at night. But since we belong to the day, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love, and for a helmet, the hope of salvation. For God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, so that whether we are awake or asleep, we might live with Him. Therefore, encourage one another and build one another up, just as you are doing. This is the inspired, inerrant, all-sufficient Word of God. Let's go to Him now. Father God, I would ask this morning that you would bring our attention to what is eternal. Lord, we are all too distracted and amused by that which is temporal. Father, help us this morning by your word to fix our minds on what is eternal. Lord, I pray that in the preaching of your word, you would keep me from error, help me to say true things and helpful things. God, help us to see your word more clearly, that we might respond to it more appropriately. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Amen. So in this text, you can clearly see that it is written with the backdrop of the day of the Lord. Paul speaks of the day of the Lord here, or or the, the day of Christ's return. But it's worth noting at the outset, as we jump in here, it's worth noting what we don't see in this text. And that is any indication of when the Lord is going to come again. In fact, as you look at the text there, when Paul mentions the times and seasons, I believe that he's being intentionally ambiguous with his language. We don't actually get an understanding here of when the Lord is going to return. However, what we do find in this text is a description of the day of the Lord. The apostle actually tells the the church at Thessalonica that they have no need to have anything written to them about this because they are fully aware of what he's going to remind them of. Nonetheless, he goes on 
to draw their attention to a couple of characteristics of that day. He says that the day of the Lord will be both unexpected and inescapable. These two realities hold true for every person on earth, but at the beginning of this passage, the apostle emphasizes the reality of these things for those not united to Christ by faith. We see that the day of the Lord will be unexpected in verse 2, where he says that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. To understand this, you only have to ask yourself, why does a thief come under the cover of night? Well, obviously, he comes then so that you won't expect him, so that he can catch you off guard. So why then will the day of the Lord come in this way? Why is it described as a thief that comes in the night? Does the, does the Lord Jesus want to catch humanity at its most vulnerable position when he comes? Does the Lord want to make most clear to humanity its own depravity by catching it in the midst of its most vile acts? I don't think so. Rather, the, the emphasis here in the text is more to do with the natural condition of men simply not having a spiritual mind. The, the lost, you see, are not convinced that the Lord will come and judge the earth by His standard of holiness and righteousness. They don't think that there's ever going to be a day of ultimate accountability. Thus, they live without reference to it. Totally in the dark, only to be surprised when that day does come, like a thief surprises his unexpecting victims. But not only will that day be unexpected, Paul tells us here that it will be inescapable. He goes on to say, while people are saying there is peace and security, then sudden destruction will come upon them as labor pains come upon a pregnant woman, and they will not escape. While the world may not expect the coming judgment of the Lord, when it arrives, there will be no delaying it and there will be no negotiating about it. Like the hour of delivery for the expectant mother, there is no other option at that point. And we're not left here to wonder what fate awaits those who live without regard for the judgment to come. We're not left to question what it is that they're going to be not able to escape. Their inescapable fate is destruction, the apostle tells us. Now my words are far too feeble to try to do justice to the horror of that day. But it's necessary that we grasp the force of what the scriptures are setting out here. So just allow me for a moment to give you a biblical snapshot of what that day will be like. Elsewhere in Scripture, we read of that day that for those who do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. There will be tribulation and distress. Another place tells us, when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with His mighty angels in flaming fire, He will inflict vengeance on those who do not know God, 
and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. They will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of His might. Still another place from the pen of the Apostle John says that that day even the rich and powerful will cry out to the mountains and rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of Him who is seated on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of their wrath has come, and who can stand? Friends, the answer to that rhetorical question is that no one will stand on that day. And I must say at this point, before we move on, that if you've not believed in the Lord Jesus and repented of your sins, please know that day is coming for you and it will be inescapable. But you should also know this morning that if you trust in Christ and His death on the cross and the payment for your sins there, He will not withhold grace from you, friend. In fact, It's those forgiven of sin that Paul goes on to speak about in this verse. He turns his attention to them now. Having set out a clear understanding of what that dreadful day will be like for the lost, Paul now zeroes in on the believer and reminds us that this terrible fate is not ours. Now in the text, we find encouragement for those set apart from the world. The apostle sets up this contrast plainly in verse 4, writing, But you are not in darkness, brothers, for that day to surprise you like a thief. So, Christians we see here are to anticipate a future that's altogether different than what's just been described. Because there's something categorically different about them. In fact, the believer's destiny we see here is the antithesis of the unbelievers. I told you that the thrust of this passage is that your glorification should fuel your sanctification as you're made confident by your justification. Well, here we need to unpack what it means for the believer to be glorified. Simply put, glorification is the point at which upon the Lord Jesus' return, the image of God, broken and tarnished at the fall, is fully restored. Those united to Christ by faith are made to be like Him. So while the lost are eternally fixed in their position of opposition and rebellion to Christ, the Christian is made to be eternally like his Savior. And because believers are made to be like the perfect one, they're freed from all imperfection. It's at this point that for those in Christ, all pain and suffering and sorrow and death cease. It's a glorious reality. Those who endure the judgment of Christ on that day of the Lord will be sent to hell where they will know only agony and torment and infinite wrath. Yet for those to be glorified... Because God has set on Christ the punishment belonging to them and has given them the righteousness of Christ, these will know the infinite grace of God rather than the infinite wrath of God. They'll know the infinite mercy of God rather than the infinite justice of God. John tells us in Revelation 20, 
one, what this glorification will bring when speaking of the Lord, he says, He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. And why? Why is the Christian to anticipate a different future than those in the world? Well, because there is something categorically different about the Christian. From God's perspective, they're in another position in relation to Him. What exactly is that relational difference, you may ask? Well, you'll see there, verse 5 tells us. Paul says, For you are children of light, children of the day. So rather than living in a perpetual state of darkness, the believer's mind has been illuminated to see the reality of the lordship of Christ over all and His authority to come and judge all. Paul describes this categorical difference elsewhere, saying, For at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of the light. Another place we read, uh, in fact, we read this just a few weeks ago from Colossians 1, verse 13. He says there that God has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of His beloved Son. Friends, if by God's grace you have come to see and submit to the truth of Jesus' Lordship, then praise God for your belonging to Him. Because that's what this text shows, the categorical difference between Christians and the world that causes us to expect something different is the fact that we belong to Christ. And as Neil reminded us last week, on the day of the Lord, Jesus is going to come and take all those who belong to Him to be with Him forever where He is to enjoy the fullness of His presence for all eternity. So there is immense comfort for those here set apart from the world. Yet this encouragement that we find from our glorious fate should not simply leave us feeling comforted. Paul says that this encouragement should find expression in our lives. And, and not just any expression that we would see fit. No, Paul goes on to show what the proper expression of this comfort should be as he now calls us to sobriety. That's the next progression in this text is a call to sobriety. Having stated our position positively as children of the light... He goes on to state it negatively, saying we are not of the night or of the darkness. And because we're not of the night, he says, so then let us not sleep as, though, as others do, but let us keep awake and be sober. For those who sleep, sleep at night, and those who get drunk are drunk at night. Now, this is the, uh, a classic example of the indicative leading to the imperative, not the other way around. We see this all through the New Testament. That who we already are is what governs what we are called to do. You see, the idea is not that one would keep awake and be sober so that you would be a child of light. 
No, it's because you are a child of light that you're to act in line with that reality. This is the key to understanding the moral imperatives, the moral commands of Scripture. We, We can't get that mixed up. Who you are is what governs what you're called to do. Doing the moral commands of Scripture cannot change who you are before God. Nonetheless, for those who've been born again and belong to Christ, please understand there are moral imperatives. There are moral commands that make the reality of who you are apparent. Here Paul says that one of those commands is to be sober. Now the Apostle is not speaking of sobriety in terms of abstinence from alcohol, although to be sure, the Bible does condemn physical drunkenness as sin. But but here, the commands to keep awake and be sober are used as synonyms to complement one another concerning a spiritual state of awareness and seriousness that should characterize the Christian. These are set over against the spiritual stupor and stumbling of those in darkness. Those in darkness are those that we heard spoken of in 2 Peter just a bit ago, who because of their blindness to spiritual realities, say, where is the promise of His coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. And they scoff with these words. And because of this blindness, they live according to whatever fleeting desires that they may have. But again, this is consistent. We see there the relationship of the indicative to the imperative. As we see that those who belong to the night do things that pertain to the night. Yet Christians are called to forsake this kind of blindness and apathy. And now it becomes even clearer to the reader that the call to keep awake and be sober are synonyms as Paul repeats his command to the believer and he distills it now to just be sober. He says, since we belong to the day, in verse 8, be sober. As to say, live in a way that's consistent with the reality that you belong to the Lord. But we're left to ask, what does it mean to live soberly? Well, obviously, to be sober is to have a a clear mind. to, To have a good grip on the reality at hand. And the reality at hand as the Christian contemplates how to live life in light of our belonging to the Lord, the reality at hand is that the Lord God hates sin and He's coming to judge it. The reality is that your moral decisions matter because they display something of who you are and what is to come for you. We find the same idea in Colossians 3, where Paul says, Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these things, the wrath of God is coming. In these two you once walked when you were living in them, but now you must put them all away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. These things are not fitting to one whose ultimate hope is to be saved out of what the Lord Jesus hates and made like the Lord Jesus Himself. The call to sobriety, friends, is none less than a call to sanctification. Sanctification is the process of our progressively becoming more like the Lord Jesus in this life. 
You see, if our future is the glorious experience of purity and righteousness and holiness so that we can be in perfect communion with God, those things ought to be our pursuit today. It was the great John Owen who said, No man ought to look for anything in heaven if he has not, by faith, first had some experience of it in this life. This is precisely what the Scriptures are teaching us here. It's why as Paul calls us to this life of sobriety, he begins to use the analogy of armor that a soldier would put on for battle. The life of the Christian is not a passive one. It is one of active engagement as a soldier engages in battle. But look there in the text and notice with me that as Paul speaks of having the breastplate of faith and love and then for a helmet, the hope of salvation, notice that he is not calling you to put this armor on. Look there at the phrasing in verse 8. He says, But since we belong to the day, let us be sober, having put on this breastplate and helmet. This is not in the active tense for you to do now or, or do continually. No, this is something that's already been done. And the reason is, you were given this armor at the moment of regeneration. The, the single command of this text is to be sober. And the reason Paul begins to use this analogy of battle garb is to underscore how sober you ought to be. God's given you faith and love as a breastplate because trusting in the eternal promises of God and raising your affections to Christ in light of those promises is what keeps you alive in the battle. God's given you the hope of salvation as a helmet because reminding yourself of the empty tomb is necessary for guarding against what could be the deadliest of spiritual blows. See, all this is to highlight the seriousness of the Christian life. If a soldier goes into battle without his armor, what happens? He dies. Yeah. So brothers and sisters, how seriously are you to fight against sin? Well, like a general in war, God has dressed you with what sure makes it seem like a matter of life and death. Because it is. So then, Christian, be vigilant to be repenting of sin. That is the battle. Identify what's keeping you from further conformity to Christ and flee from it. Rather than indulging the desires and whims of the flesh as the drunkard does whatever and says whatever comes to his mind in the moment, you be vigilant to be seeking after that which pleases God. Make war on your desires so that you can conform to His desires. Make war so that you can experience in part now what you'll experience in full on that day. Be motivated by the glory to come because one of the key themes running through the Gospels is that glory always follows suffering. And the Scriptures are very clear that if we, if we desire to identify with Christ in glory, we must first identify with Christ in His war on sin, His suffering against sin. This is why Paul says in Romans 8, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. But 
But at this point, you, you may be thinking, but I've tried. I've tried so hard to defeat this sin or that sin. And it just keeps coming. I'm so tired, Trey. I, I, I can't articulate to you how many hours I've spent praying, how many verses I've memorized to try to combat this sin, how much accountability that I've tried to build into my life. I'm so tired. And, and, and you know, occasionally I'll get a reprieve. Occasionally I'll think that maybe the battle's finally over. Maybe that sin lies dead. And then it's like I'll turn around and there it is, coming at me on every front. And I feel like I'm never going to win. What's the point? If that's you, hear me this morning. Keep in the fight. Keep in the fight. Don't grow weary or lazy and think that it just must not be a big deal because I still struggle with it. No. Maintain a serious, defensive posture against sin because you will win, brother or sister. You will win. You say, how how can you know that I'm going to win? It sure doesn't feel like I'm going to win. How do you know I'm going to win? Because, brothers and sisters, that's the reason Christ died. Look at verse 9. It starts with this conjunction for. So so Paul is giving you the reason why we maintain our fight against sin with the tools that God has given us. He says, For God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us so that whether we are awake or asleep, we might live with Him. You fight. Because the decisive battle in the war on sin has already been won at the cross of Christ. You see, at the cross, Christ absorbed all the wrath of God for those who trust in Him for it, and He credited His righteousness to all who would trust in Him for it. And the moment that God gave you the faith to believe that, it became effective for you. That's what justification is. So it's His death that secures Not only your escape from the wrath of God to come, but it's His death that also secures the completion of your sanctification, friend. So how confident then can you be that sin will not claim the victory in your life and that the the battle is worth continuing to fight? As confident as you are that the shed blood of the Son of God will do what He purposed it to do. It should be noted here at the end of that verse when Paul says that this is true for those who are awake and asleep. He's not undermining everything that he's just called the Christian to do in this command to stay awake. He's he's merely using these terms in the same way that he did back up in chapter 4, meaning that this is true for Christians that are both alive and the Christians that are dead. So we find here that the Lord, through the Apostle Paul, has called us to a sober life for the sake of our souls. But in God's kindness, He doesn't expect us to do this alone. You'll see there in verse 11, the last thing in our text this morning is a call to care for the body. A call to care for the body. As all of what has preceded this final line of our text has been addressed to all the members of the church at Thessalonica. So here, 
we have God calling all the members of the church to care for one another's soul in light of what's just been taught. So too, Midtown, we need to recognize that in light of the war on sin that we've been called to in anticipation of the glory to come, we must care for one another while we're still on the battlefield. Paul says that we are to both encourage and build up one another. So there's this element of comforting those wounded by the battle and training those who don't know how to do battle. But the context makes perfectly clear that unlike some military outfit, this care and training is not relegated to any particular rank or office. It's something every member of the church is called to do. Because by God's design, your brothers and sisters need you, and you need them. So, in closing this morning, I just want to read you the second commitment found in our membership covenant here at Midtown Baptist Church. And as I read it, I would call you, on the, on the authority of the Word of God that we just read, I would call you to commit yourself to it anew. Hear these words, the second commitment of our membership covenant. We will walk together in brotherly love as becomes the members of a Christian church. Exercise an affectionate care and watchfulness over each other and faithfully admonish and entreat one another as occasion may require. Let's commit ourselves anew to this midtown. May it ever be true of our body. Let's pray.